Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that investigates matters to do with motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories including some new models from Holden. This week's program is a little different. We've been attending the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management's National Conference in Melbourne. We have spoken to a few people and we have some reflections on some of the things that were said. So if you have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. As Holden moves to access new vehicles from overseas, its new SUV models have been announced. As the SUV market continues to expand, Holden has chosen to replace the Captiva with two different vehicles, both sourced from General Motors in the United States. The Equinox will replace the five-seat Captiva later in 2017, with the seven-seat version of the Captiva being replaced by the larger Acadia sometime in 2018. The Equinox is actually built in Mexico and will be available in a variety of engine types including a 1.5 and 2 litre petrol turbo engine and a 1.6 litre turbo diesel. The British government recently released its air quality plan in which it announced that it will ban all petrol and diesel vehicles including hybrids from 2040 with only electric vehicles available after that. But the chairman of the UK government's committee on the medical effects of air pollutants says the ban doesn't go far enough. Writing in the Guardian newspaper, Professor Frank Kelly says fewer, not cleaner vehicles are needed to tackle the UK's air pollution crisis, plus more cycling and walking and better transit systems. Kelly said that while the switch to electric vehicles is a signal for real change and is the direction we need to go, British cities need fewer cars, not just cleaner cars. In Germany, over 2.5 million consumers bought diesel vehicles that were equipped with Volkswagen technology, which cheated on emission tests, and may have been indirectly responsible for 1,200 or more premature deaths across Europe. And yet, unlike the 560,000 owners of similarly rigged vehicles in the US, German owners haven't gotten anything in the way of compensation from Volkswagen. But that's about to change. Volkswagen has recently announced its own Cash for Clunkers trade-in program, designed to get older diesel models off the road. Consumers can receive bonuses of up to €10,000, or nearly $15,000, if they trade in an older diesel, made by any automaker, for a new VW model. If you're buying an eco-friendly model, the trade-in will be even more. Those buying natural gas vehicles, hybrids and fully electric vehicles can expect an additional allowance of up to €2,380. The timing of Volkswagen's announcements isn't a coincidence. The Dieselgate scandal has fostered a growing distrust of diesels, even in Europe, where diesels have historically been very popular. In the United States, it's time for college students to head back to campus. Many companies are trying to get a slice of the students' buying power and one auto company has launched a car aimed specifically at the student market. 
Mini, which is owned by BMW, has recently released the Oxford Edition. And Mini isn't just targeting it to students, it's prohibiting anyone else from buying it. To qualify, you'll need to be an undergraduate or a graduate student at an accredited institution of higher learning. You can also qualify if you graduated from an accredited college or university within the past 12 months. The Oxford edition is identical to the Mini F56 Cooper Hardtop 2-door, which originally started at $21,600. However, the Oxford edition also comes standard with many features that would cost extra on the F56. The cost for this is about $20,600 US dollars or $26,000 Australian dollars. If you want to buy an Oxford edition Mini, but you aren't a student, don't worry, you can still get one, but it will cost you an extra $6,000. Chinese e-commerce company Alibaba is to open its own car vending machine next year in a bid to make buying a car as easy as buying a can of Coke. The launch follows used car seller Autobahn Motors opening of its futuristic 15-storey showroom in Singapore last year, which was billed as the world's largest luxury car vending machine. Autobahn's vending machine displays vehicles in 60 slots, with customers on the ground floor able to choose from a touchscreen display to see the car they wish. Autobahn's vending machine displays vehicles in 60 slots, with customers on the ground floor able to choose from a touchscreen display the car they wish to see. The car arrives within two minutes thanks to an advanced system that manages vehicle retrieval. According to the Financial Times, Alibaba will follow in Autobahn's footsteps with the launch of its own car vending machine. It would allow buyers to browse cars on their smartphones and press the buy button, which then releases the car from the vertical display tower. And that has been the news. One of the major factors in the emergence of new technologies for transport is the number of non-traditional companies that are now involved in the development of solutions. Perhaps this is not surprising when digital technologies are the basis of mid Perhaps this is not surprising when digital technologies are the basis of many new opportunities. Autonomous capabilities has as much to do with the type of systems that Google has developed as it has with manufacturing internal combustion engines. Uber has established itself with an aggressive business approach in true disruptor style, but its product is based on clever use of a scheduling system mixed with GPS location of vehicles. This leads to the sort of service that the traditional taxi industry failed to foresee, especially with customer service benefits such as being able to show the client the location of the vehicle on its journey to pick them up. Now Telstra is known as Australia's largest telecommunications and media company which builds and operates telecommunications networks and markets voice, mobile, internet access, pay television and other entertainment products and services. So why were they at the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management's National Conference? I caught up with Jamie Smith, Telstra's Business Development Executive for Transport, and that doesn't mean he's running the fleet department. Telstra I think of as my little local phone, is that just the part of your business or is it much broader than that? That's where it all started a hundred years ago. Any colour you want as long as it's black. Um, the reality is we're a $28 billion a year company listed on the ASX. We've realised that we can't afford to be a telco 
just a telco anymore, so we're becoming a technology company, a world-class technology company. And it's a hard job of transforming the business uh, over the next three to four to five years. Uh, a lot of work to do. But it is in sort of communication things and particularly in transport. What sort of activities are you involved in? Uh, it's not just communication, but communication underpins everything we're doing. So we actually have uh, a number of things that aren't just communication network related. We've got a big security practice, a consulting and a technology practice. Uh, we build applications for customers, web applications and mobile applications. We provide managed services for people who typically would have done it themselves in the past, but now they're looking for expertise and capability, 24 by 7 network and application and cloud and platform management. It would also be things like connected vehicles. That would come into it? Yeah, so there's a range of uh, things that are happening in the transport industry that are very much digitally disrupted activities, so connected cars, autonomous vehicles, congestion management, road user pricing, all of those things that are transforming the transport industry need a technology response and we are looking at the moment as to where we should play, how we should play and developing brand new business initiatives for exactly that area. And you have been involved in New South Wales with a vehicle to vehicle with trucks down in Wollongong, haven't you? Yeah, we're involved in quite a few state government trials, uh, South Australia, Victoria, Queensland, New South Wales, around connecting the vehicles that are running around on the road, specifically to collect data from the vehicles for analysing and learning and figuring out what works, what doesn't, before they become ubiquitous and everyone's driving around in autonomous vehicles and we don't really know enough about how they work. So the idea of the trials at the moment is for government, road agency, regulators and safety people to learn what they need to learn. So what sort of messages they, well, how often they get a message and what sort of messages they might be are all relevant factors? Very much the individual car itself has got massive amounts of onboard computer processing power and it's communicating to lots of things around it, other vehicles, traffic light infrastructure, pedestrians, cyclists, the control centre, the traffic management centre. So there's multiple things affecting the decision the car processor makes and you've got to build programs and refine them and adapt them and tune them and uh, make sure they don't uh, get you back into trouble where you've been into trouble once. You need to learn and adapt and build that into the program. Yes, it sounds simple, but it's a complex system, isn't it? And it's not just getting the message, it's getting it in the right time and getting the right message. I think if you talk to anyone involved in this new evolving industry, they will. none of them will say it's simple. They all say it's hard. You've got to build things into cars. You've got to build systems into cars that control the brakes, the steering, the uh, everything about the car. You've got to build infrastructure that is part of the road network that talks to the car. Um, You've got to build systems that collect the data, learn from the data, act in real time when there's an incident and divert traffic or allocate, send, send a signal to emergency services to respond, etc., etc., etc. So, again, uh, the message is not just to the driver, it, or it's to the car as a, as a structure, but also to the authorities as a road builder or, as you say, the emergency people. Correct, yeah. The car, at the moment, uh, 99% of the cars on the road are controlled by the human behind the wheel. 
there's some element of aut- autonomous operation in some cars, simple as cruise control, to the next level up, which is keep you in the lane based on watching, you know, sensing the lines on the road. Vehicle ahead braking suddenly, you can detect it through uh, radar and LIDAR technology and you can avoid collisions. So, so there's a degrees of aut- automation coming. As more and more cars become more and more automated, that whole complex network of things won't be driven by humans, it'll be driven by machines that will respond much faster. And once they've learned a particular behaviour or phenomenon is a bad thing, they'll store that forever, whereas humans keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, which is pretty much fundamentally why we kill 1,200 people a year on our roads and put 30,000 people into hospital from road incidents. So... It's an important area that's got real social uh, purpose and value. It's not just being done to sell more technology or sell more cars or reduce congestion or pollution. It's being done to save lives. It's really important. And it doesn't get tired and it doesn't get emotional. 24 by 7. And it only stops when the car itself has some problems. So conceptually, cars could just keep running and keep running. If they're fully driverless and fully autonomous, they could just keep going 24 by 7 and then pull in for a service every week, top up the oil, check the system, back out on the road. They're very, very uh, effective and efficient use of these expensive resources compared to today where most cars are not used any more than 10, 10% of their potential use. So we have 90% of our motor vehicles on the road sitting dormant in car parks or on the side of the road for most of the time. Things can go wrong. Redundancy, is that an issue? Big issue. So most of the systems in the cars will have multiple forms of redundancy in the systems, in the processes. They will actually be controlled electromechanically rather than wirelessly so if the computer program itself says i need to tell the car to apply the brakes that message will be delivered through a wire and that's basically designed around machine safety standards that have been established over many many years for uh, automated manufacturing equipment everything is designed to a basically a fail-proof method jamie lovely to talk to you thank you for your time thanks david cheers Overdrive. If you have a question, suggestion or comment, send an email to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. At the time of the conference, which was held in Melbourne, the latest list of the world's most livable cities was announced. For the fifth year in a row, Melbourne was top of the list. But the general discussion was that these lists are totally meaningless and more about promoting the organisations which compile them and providing boasting rights for the cities that are top of the rankings. The real livability of a city is determined by its walkability. It is not determined by just the number of attractions if those attractions are hard or unpleasant to get to. And it is not just about how quickly you can move about. It is how pleasant and revealing the access part of your activity is. One of the participants at the conference was comedian and activist Rod Quantock. 
Rod, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, said that Melbourne was indeed a great city if you didn't get killed. Overdrive, answering your questions across Australia. Brent Todarian was a keynote speaker at the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management's National Conference. He is a city planner and urbanist with an international reputation. He openly admits that mass was not his strongest subject. This was a bit of a disadvantage in the early part of his career when he spoke with transport planners. With a basis in engineering, these transport professionals could often produce a graph or a table to support their recommendations, which were often focused on moving cars or creating transport systems. A graph that showed an increase in car travel speed, for example, could be used to justify many a construction activity. He found in the later part of his career that there was a much greater acceptance of measuring things other than just the movement of vehicles, most particularly gauging the health benefits of various methods of moving around a city, which can include wandering, as well as travelling in as straight a line as possible in the quickest time possible. He now finds that some of the greatest support for his ideas on city planning are coming from the medical professions, and they provide him with graphs to support their position. Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. The New South Wales Government is doing a trial of vehicle-to-vehicle communication in the Wollongong region to the south of Sydney on some major trucking routes. If one truck driver has to brake suddenly, for example, then information can be sent to other nearby vehicles and a warning can be given to that driver. I raised the question about the nature of that warning. We have found that modern cars can give a warning sound in a potentially dangerous situation, but by the time you work out what that warning means, it might be too late. In fact, trucks in the trial turn off the technology in urban areas because they are getting so many false readings that undermines the system's credibility. I believe we need to bring in behavioural scientists, not just digital experts, to ensure that we get the right messages and that they are clearly understood and they produce the right reactions in the drivers. This becomes all the more important when you consider that it is anticipated in the future we are less likely to own a car and more likely to use a shared vehicle. A shared vehicle is not as familiar as one that you might own and use regularly. Now Overdrive tests a new car each week and we struggle to get used to each one and we can hate a car because something as simple as setting the radio stations is unnecessarily complicated or just simply unintuitive. 
After this was raised at the conference session, a number of transport planners spoke of their own difficulties in coping with new car idiosyncrasies. I spoke to one of the delegates, John Jenkins, who is a traffic engineer with many years of experience. Well, David, I bought a new vehicle and I couldn't find the off switch for the radio. And eventually I figured out you must just turn the volume down until you can't hear it, and that that was off. And I thought, well, that sort of works. But then I was talking to other people and no one else could find the off switch either, which confirmed that it must just get down to zero. Then three weeks later... Three weeks later, I was with someone saying I couldn't turn it off. They said, oh, it's easy. You hold the back button and you hold it down. I have another fellow I know at work. He's had a new vehicle for over 12 months and he still hasn't found the off button for the radio. He just turns it down to zero. It's all part and parcel of getting in cars you don't know, which may become more prominent. Well, it is, and then also this one gives various warnings for, for various things over the speed limit, school zones, etc. And you hear the beep, but then you've got to look down at the uh, indicator or the screen, which is takes your eyes off the road to see what it's beeping about. And it really needs heads-up display. If you're going to do anything like that, it's got to be a heads-up display so you know what's going on, or otherwise it's distracting. And it could be more dangerous than, um, than going without it, in fact. And also the, the fact that once you look down, and it's got to have a clear message. Yes, you've got to find it on the screen. And sometimes the writing's too small for someone, you know, as you get on in years. I, I think a lot of these things are designed, and the colours are designed for people with um, good eyesight, you know, 20, 30-year-olds. It's conspicuity, and font size is just not there. I don't have to have glasses for driving because my long distance, you know, my short-sightedness is good but my reading's not. So looking down, I often find that I, I have trouble reading. I just, you know, I need reading glasses to put on. Well, I've got multifocals which cover both instances, but sometimes when you look down, you don't, you've got to adjust the glasses a little bit or move your head up and down to get the uh, sweet spot to read that close text. So it is, you know, it's, not, it's good, but it can be distracting, so you don't use it all the time. John, thank you. Okay, uh, Overdrive. For more information and past programs, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Brent Tadarian knows well that many government authorities have produced wonderful documents about their vision for a city. But his point is that the true directions that city will take is not reflected in what is said or written in their vision statements, but in the allocation of their budgets. And the two are often quite different. Kate Wickett is the Project Director Future Transport at Transport for New South Wales. At the conference, she specifically noted that for their latest direction, they are not going to produce a 250-page glossy report full of vision statements. Instead, they have put their effort into producing an interactive program on their website. One of the issues in the past has been that community meetings can, by their very nature, only attract a small number of people that are unlikely to represent a comprehensive cross-section of the community and their needs. 
Their web-based approach is not only aimed at telling people about what the government is thinking of doing, it actively strives to elicit the community's thoughts and ideas. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Paul Just and the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management for their great help in producing this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.